Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Welcome back. Sunday morning, second second day of our annual event, Copy 2014, I like to keep calling it. Um, so... Just to say what the program is for the rest of the morning, we've just, some of us have just started off with a meditation, so thank you Paul, he's, I think he's gone, but, so now we're going to have session five, which is growing along spiritual lines, and Tim and Laura are going to speak from um, their experience and from the big book. We'll have a 15 minute coffee break at quarter to 11, and then we have the Ask It Basket. So, as we said yesterday, at the back of the room, there's an ask it basket if you want to ask questions and you don't want to say them in front or you think of them as, as, as they're speaking. Write it there and um, that will be a session on um, just everybody's questions. And then we'll finish uh, the morning with an open meeting. So, we'll all have an open meeting and we'll close about one o'clock. And uh, please eat the massive food there is after one o'clock, because uh, otherwise we we don't we don't like waste. So um, with that, I'll start. Um, Roshan is going to start with a prayer. Morning, everyone. So as yesterday, I we're going to start with the set aside prayer. God, please set aside anything I think I know about myself about my disease, about the big book, the 12 steps, the program, the fellowship, and especially you, God, so that I may have an open mind and a new experience with all these things. Please help me see the truth. Amen. So this morning we're going to talk about growing along spiritual lines. My name is Laura. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Laura. And, uh, and how it works, it tells us we are not saints, what we are is willing to grow along spiritual lines. Of course, I didn't know what that meant when I came into into AA. I didn't understand that the 12 steps were the spiritual path. But there's a line in Bill's story at the bottom of page um, 14, I think, or is it 13 into 14? Bottom of page 14, this tells me exactly how I need to grow along spiritual lines. It tells me how not to. <laughs> so it's written in the negative. It says, for, it says, faith without works is dead, which they reminded us of in step eight. And it says, this is appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic fails to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through going to church, <laughs> preparing meditation, well, that might be part of it. But it says, through work and self-sacrifice for others, he cannot survive the certain trials and those spots ahead. You know, I came into this program a very selfish person. <laughs> I thought it was all about me and my sobriety and my recovery and in the beginning well, it is, it is, but, you know, this is how I grow spiritually. 
And it reminds me of an experience I had in 2002, three years before I got sober, when my family sent me back to Canada to that rehab. And there were um, the four weekly workshops. One was on anger management, one was on da-da-da, one was on spirituality. So I went to this one, and we were all sitting in a circle in a big common room, and cushy chairs, and da-da-da. And the counselor came out to the, into the center of the room, and she was holding a ball of yarn. And she gave me the end of the yarn, and she said, hold this. And then she went across the room, I should have brought a ball of yarn. <laughs> Crossed the room to, and asked someone to hold the yarn at that point. And then she crisscrossed and made this kind of web that joined everyone in the room to this one piece of red yarn. And then she asked the simple question, what is spirituality? And the answer was obvious. It was being connected. You know? And uh, our disease can sometimes be a, one of isolation. And I tell I'm quite happy on my own. <laughs> So I needed to learn to reach out to other people. And so step 12 reads, having had a spiritual awakening as, a, as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So carry this message. This message that you can get well from alcoholism by having a spiritual experience. You can find the power that you're lacking in your life that they mentioned on uh, page 45. Because lack of power, we're powerless over alcohol, so lack of power is our real problem. You know, lack of power to live with it, obviously, but especially lack of power to live without it. That's why I fell into a, the trap. <laughs> For me, you know, I look at alcohol as not some big evil demon, but it was a trap that I just fell into naturally, partly because of my physical allergy, but also because of the way I made up here and here. <laughs> so carrying the message to other alcoholics. Now, I thought I had a lot of old ideas, erroneous ideas, and I thought you had to have like 10 or 20 years as a sober alcoholic to become a sponsor or help someone else. But uh, as I said, I got into a group with strong sponsorship and and I was told that, you know, once I had started my amends and started practicing step 10 or 11 that, and the next newcomer woman that walked into the room, I was to go over and, you know, introduce myself and make contact. It was pretty hard because the men were usually all over the women, but that's okay. You know, little by little, and quite soon, quite soon, God, life, sent me three newcomers. They were all French-speaking, and I speak French, but I'm not French, so... But, you know, working with those first three, I'm not sure any of them got anything out of it, but I stayed sober. That wasn't really my intention, but... <laughs> and, of course, you know, it says in uh, Vision for You, I'm alone, jittery, and afraid. I don't know what to do. And it reminds us that, we, you know, we've just been in contact with a power greater than ourselves. 
And so I went out there and did what I was supposed to do. But first, I must, I must admit that I had begun to have a spiritual experience. And that, you know, at step five, I did see what my real problem was. <laughs> you know, it wasn't really about the drinking. It was more about selfishness and self-centeredness. And, you know, I had been freed of, well, the drinking problem, temporarily, anyway. I had been freed. I had this huge monkey off my back. But all that baggage I had been carrying around with me all my life, you know, I had been freed of that, too. And I just, I felt like bursting. I felt like I'd finally been initiated into the real Alcoholics Anonymous. Only because it wasn't their fault. It was, you know, I had been in complete delusion, illusion. But I was bursting to carry this message. You know, I did want to help others. So that helped too. You know, and it gives us, um, so as far as helping others, it gives us specific instructions. This book is so amazing on actually how to do this. You know? And uh, my, my sponsor said, okay, you know, you've got, I, I think we met on our first 12-step call the day before my first birthday. He did all the talking. I was, I was meant to observe, but it was great. It was great. And... Uh, it talks about getting the identification first by telling a little bit of our story in a general way. I try not to be so wordy as I was yesterday <laughs> because I find that if I'm too specific about some of my big drama and, and that the other person may, um, may use that to, th to convince themselves they're not an alcoholic, but I talk about the emotional state, and as it says in this book, you know, the unsuccessful attempts I need to stop, but it depends. I try to get them talking, and very often um, I find that prospects want to talk more about themselves. You know, in this book it, talk, it talks about finding out all you can about the alcoholic before um, before you meet them. Sometimes, most of the time, in my experience, that's very difficult. You know, they were often approached by families of alcoholics. Um, that hasn't happened to me too too often. You know, the alcoholic walks into the room, or I meet them uh, through a hospital. Um, we do hospital presentations, and so it's difficult to get to know them by the back door. So you just Listening, I do sometimes I do as much listening in a twelve step call as as talking, you know. But the whole idea of a twelve step call, and it's repeated several times here in the book, is to get the message across about what this illness really is. Um, and that it is an illness. <laughs> it took me so long to be convinced about that, that I really did have an illness. First of all, the physical side, the allergy, the reason why we drink so much. And then the second side, the mental side, why we pick up that first drink. And I'm always amazed at this book because it's got clear-cut instructions to do every single one of these steps. And as I said, I'm amazed at people with loads of years of experience. They often share in meetings that 
When they're called on a 12-step call, the first thing they do is pick up this book and go to chapter 7 and reread the instructions. <laughs> reread the instructions on how to talk to a person. See your man alone if possible, you know, without the family, without any more outside pressure. That means the man is alone. Sometimes it's good if, we're, if we are too. Doing the 12 step call. But the whole, uh, the whole thing too is, uh, is listening. Because it tells me I need, I need to find out if I, I need to find out if this person is a real alcoholic or is maybe looking for something else. I remember one 12-step call I did with a Polish woman who was through a doctor, through one of the AAs, and Polish background. So I went, and it turned out that she was really just looking for a man. (laughs) I do believe she was probably an alcoholic, but she hadn't really reached the end. She needed to find something that would fix her. She believed it was man. But all I can do really in a 12-step call is um, share my experience with the illness, try to get that identification. It's so easy to be tempted to present the solution. <laughs> I remember going um, with someone on a 12-step call, and he called me out of the blue. And he really didn't know anything about his prospect, except that her life was in a real mess. And being an alcoholic himself, he thought it was due to drinking. <laughs> and uh, so I went along with him, and, and he just barreled in with a solution, you know. And I was quite shocked at that, but I couldn't really stop him. But basically, he was sort of accusing her of being an alcoholic and that she should come to AA without really uh, <clears throat> getting that identification, as it explains to you. Yeah. Continue to speak of alcoholism as an illness, a fatal malady. Yeah. How blind I had been, how I really wouldn't admit that I had a problem. But I also try to take away the shame because... If it is an illness, it's not my fault. And I think that comes through when I'm speaking. You know, I'm not ashamed to say I'm an alcoholic. But with people who might be resistant to that word, I'd say I've had severe problems with, you know, severe drinking problems for years. I could not let go of alcohol. So until they pop the question, I don't talk about the solution. Not really. If they ask, I might be able to talk about the solution. Very often they don't ask. I remember one of my first 12-step calls and this woman was in the hospital. (coughs) She was an American woman, and I think she had possibly dabbled in AA in the past, but I didn't know that at the beginning. 
she was there in the hospital and her ankles were swollen because of drinking and this and that and everything. She was convinced that she didn't need us. It was very unfortunate. But she was relating. I could see she was relating. I went with a gentleman and she was relating to our drinking stories, nodding her head. Uh, but she would not ask the question, the question, what do I have to do to get well? <laughs> so I encouraged her to ask the question. <laughs> but she was not interested in uh, joining, the, joining the program. I hope she's still alive. <clears throat> but I have to remember, it's, this isn't really about me. I don't go out to um, help another alcoholic. Not consciously to, to stay sober. You know, I don't get myself into a place where I have to jump on someone to stay sober. Uh, Dr. Bob says in his story, this is, this program is for people who need it and want it. And I was like, I was like, I was that person for five years. I needed it, but I didn't want it yet. And you know, the AAs, they left me alone. In my, in my first couple of years of sobriety, because I had found a group of strong sponsorship, sometimes I complained that no one ever came to the hospital, no one ever phoned me, no, no one really 12-stepped me after a meeting. But, you know, I think they, they could see, they could see that I just wasn't ready. You know, I try not to make that judgment, because I know I'm always even though I don't see the immediate results, it's up to God, or that person's higher power, let's say. <laughs> that person's level of desperation and their higher power. But all I can do is try to plant a seed. Remember, that gentleman in Canada three years before I got serious about AA, he planted two seeds. He mentioned this book, I'm going through a line by line. And when I relapsed immediately after that rehab, he said, you need to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And everybody has a different path. I needed those meetings <laughs> to help me calm down. An hour a day or two hours a day, just like the meditation session we had. To sit there, calm down, learn to listen, get out of my own head, and you know, identify. It took me that long to really, or half that time to identify, and to become one of you, <laughs> to admit I was one of you, one of us now, one of us. They also give some warnings about what not to do. This tells me exactly what to do and what not to do. It certainly says, uh, if he is not interested, don't pester him. <laughs> don't pester him. And I've probably been guilty of that in the past. Uh, trying to be helpful. My very first friend in France, as I said, uh, she's a drinker. She's still drinking. But she got sober before I did, and not through AA. She got thrown in a psychiatric unit. They gave her a pill. That became her higher power. She stayed sober for about three and a half years. But, uh, and she wouldn't talk to me during most of it because I was still drinking. Which is fine. But, uh, 
I know, I did, she did see a change in me. She was interested in AA. She did come to a few meetings. Uh, but now every time I go see her, she brings the subject up. But I almost feel like it's something standing in between us, you know. So I, I should introduce her to another AA that, uh, if she really wants help. But I don't think, I, I think she wants to continue on her own way. You know, but if they're sincerely interested, you will know it. <laughs> you will know it. We have a friend, Julie and I, <laughs> over in Dallas. He said, if they, if they want this thing, you won't be able to beat them off with a stick. <laughs> and if they don't want it, you won't be able to force feed it to them. <laughs> he says it in a slightly more uh, aggressive way, but that's okay. Yeah. And here it is about planting the seed on page 96. Do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. And that's what Bill had to do, if you know Bill's story. He tried for six months before he was presented with an opportunity with Dr. Bob. So, it says you are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. And I can't judge that level of desperation from the outside and what they look like, you know, because the desperation, to me, it's inside. It's inside. I think somebody mentioned yesterday, you know, all those bottoms, those bottoms. I bumped along the bottom, but I never surrendered. You know? And uh, it was only until I surrendered that I got that level of desperation that they're talking about in here. But I can't judge that from the inside. I'm not super sensitive. And then it tells us what to do with the second visit. You know, but this is, this is always good to, um, talk with, talk over with your sponsor, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, according to this book, very often, if you close up someone and they come back, come, come with you right away or come back to you later, they'll often end up, uh, taking them through the step. And that's not such a scary prospect, you know, because you've just completed them. Especially if you start reaching out the hand of an AA as soon as you, as soon as you've had your, uh, your wake up, your spiritual awakening. Right. <clears throat> yeah, it's fresh in your mind. You can take these people. And you know, I've worked with people who are a lot quicker at getting this than I ever was. And it's fantastic. It's fantastic. But the main thing is, it gets me out of me and... uh all right, I'm going back to the first years too. As I said, my brain was in a fog. But going through these steps every time with someone else, I learned something new. We learn together. We may learn different things, but I always learn something new. So I would encourage you to engage in this work because as it says at the beginning of chapter 7, it says nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as working with another alcoholic. I mean, wouldn't you like immunity from drinking? Immunity. 
immunity from relapse. That's what I wanted. I actually only wanted two things when I got to AA. Was serenity. I wanted the noise to stop in my head. Serenity, peace, and not to not to have to drink again. Those were the only two things I wanted. And that's that's about it. Um, that's what I received. Maybe I should start setting my sights a little higher. Uh, but for the moment, that's enough for me. Oh, yes, one last thing. It says on page 13032, um, in the family afterwards, it talks about He talks about, there's a line in there, we are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. That's what this program is all about. Because nobody wants to get sober and live a life just as miserable as they lived before. <laughs> you know, we are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. And so the steps liberate me, I get freedom, I get, I get happiness, for almost no reason, but uh, one of my mentors says, you know, the joy comes in helping others. The joy comes in caring for us. The joy comes when we see someone else wake up and the light go on in their eyes. And it's very true. It's very true. You know, and having been a very selfish person all my life, I'm just amazed that uh, at the time I I spend in doing this and um, And I enjoy it. <laughs> enjoy. That's the joy. So I'll pass it over to Tim now. My name is Tim. I'm not going to. Hi, Tim. Um, sometimes old timers are the people I need to listen to the most, and sometimes there are newcomers who I need to listen to. And there's a girl that came to AA a few years ago. And you know the way in some meetings they have uniforms, everyone, and all the men wear a tie, and all the girls wear a skirt, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, well, this girl would not have fitted in to one of those meetings. She wore a pink velour tracksuit to every meeting for the first three months. I loved her. And someone said, and she threw herself into AA, and someone said to her, um, you ought to be careful, you're putting all of your eggs into one basket. Now, she was always ready uh, with a rapid response, and she said, I only have one egg. <laughs> and I think that's very good. You see, my um, I went to see a psychiatrist, uh, rather, one of the psychiatrists I went to see, um, when I was around 20, she said, describe your, can you describe your friends, your social life? And I said, I have five categories of friends, and I, and I had these different compartments, and I genuinely thought I could keep them all separate. And uh, that's not true. There's only, I only have one mind. There's only one me. And as someone uh, I, I heard say a few years ago, he said it in rather a cruder fashion than this, but he said, you can't pee on one side of the glass and hope to drink out of the other. And in a lot of my life, I've discovered myself, um, uh, I've discovered 
um, a nasty taste in my mouth, as it were, <laughs> in one part of my life, and I see no connection with other parts of my life. And a funny thing about making amends is that you make amends in one area and other areas clear up and you had no idea there was a connection. When I made all sorts of financial amends that I had missed or brushed onto the carpet at around 15 years, weirdly my earning capacity went up because I, I get paid based on how much I produce and I track how much I produce per hour and I, I suddenly started producing 50% more per hour because my brain wasn't clogged up with all sorts of layers of guilt and so on. Um, and my financial problems <laughs> seemed to improve very rapidly. I had the same when I was around 9 or 10 years sober. I left a career that I, I didn't like. It was killing me and was I wasn't very useful in it because it was I was in it for all the wrong reasons. And I, I had a terrible spending problem. I leave this career and give up and say to a power greater than myself, you do with me what you want to do with me, I'm done. I'm done with my own plan. As soon as that happened, my spending problem disappeared. And I had worked for years on my spending problem, and the problem was something else. Um, and it's been like that with pretty much everything. Now, what this has to do with step 12 is, if I'm obsessed with work and how much I'm earning and how much I'm producing and what my clients think about me, then you'd think you have to work on that. And what my sponsor would suggest is, go and find another alcoholic to work with, go and do some service. And it appears to me that he's not listening. <laughs> he's not understanding what I'm saying. Uh, but then I go and do it, and I decide, I go back to my job, and suddenly it seems a joy. And it, I, it, I feel carefree in it, and I'm just sort of getting on with it and enjoying it, and I can't understand why I was so obsessed and weighed down with it a day earlier. So this is this idea of having one egg, or there's only one glass of water. What I pour in one side, I will taste on the other side. And the reason this is so difficult to get one's head around initially in AA, I think, is that what operates, what runs the spiritual world, all the rules that run the spiritual world, are opposite than the rules which run the material world. So when something is empty in the material world, you need to pour something into it for it to be full. If something is empty spiritually, and I am empty spiritually, I need to pour something out. I need to pour all the rubbish out first. <laughs> there is no room for anything uh, until the rubbish is poured out. And the more rubbish you pour out, the less empty you feel, which is a very peculiar observation. And then I need to carry on giving. Now, this is not a, a, a recipe for, it's not a charter for neglecting uh, the basics of one's life. So I still need to obviously look after myself and sleep and eat and uh, make sure that, I, that I'm, I'm looked after spiritually as well. But there's a wonderful line where it says much of our free time must be spent uh, engaged in the sort of work we're going to describe. It's around page um, um, 19, I think, of the big book. And my job when I'm asked for help or I observe an opportunity for service, because often that's the way, you will notice, you'll be sitting in AA and you'll notice that something needs doing. And they will, you look round and everyone's looking the other way. Everyone's pretending it's not there. 
and, ever, and everyone's waiting for someone else to do it. And as soon as you notice it, you're stuffed. You have, you have, you have to, if you notice it, you have to go and do it. And my job is not to say no. Again, this sounds like it's going to be a charter for self-sacrifice to the point of suicide. But it's not because what I, what I say yes to is engaging with the matter that needs addressing. Sometimes the way I engage with it is to uh, find other people to help with the service. Sometimes people come to me and I've got sponsees that don't have any sponsees themselves and I will point people in the direction of, of those sponsees. So the point of saying yes to service, yes to opportunities, is not for me to grab everything from myself, but to make sure that the common welfare is looked after there in my group and in, in, in my sort of AA family. But also, one thing that I've observed is that whenever I'm given the opportunity to say yes to some form of service, there's a little voice that says, but there's no time, your time is already taken up, your schedule is already full, how is this going to work? What I've discovered is if I do it on God's strength rather than my own strength, amazingly, the schedule seems to look after itself. When I'm tired after doing service, um, when I feel drained, when I feel drained after spending time with sponsees, I'm doing something wrong. Uh, I'm trying to do it on my own strength. I'm seeing myself as the source. I'm just the channel. Now, alcoholics are very sticky people. They will stick to you. I would, I would, I would stick to other people. I was sort of vampiric when I was new. Uh, suck the energy out of people, cast them aside, and go on to the next one. And part of learning how to sponsor is learning how to be effective without getting entangled. And the first thing I have to remember is, um, uh, I'm not the food. I'm the dinner lady. So I, I get, I've got my tray of mashed potatoes and I get a scoop and plonk it on your plate. Now, when people are new in AA, or even sometimes people who've been around a while and are in great spiritual need, they will mistake you for the food or they'll mistake you for the sauce. And this is, uh, this is very dangerous. Now sometimes, um, you can work with people on this. But sometimes you have to let them go and let them find someone in AA who they find boring and tiresome to take through the steps because they've developed a problem with you in that they think that you are the source of something, they think you're special in someone. And this will happen and not because you are special, but because I, I would do this with people. I saw people as delivery systems for love and respect and support and validation. And I did the same when I got to AA. You, uh, if, if you said something which made me feel better, suddenly you were on a pedestal and I, need, I needed to own you. I needed to make sure that you were always going to be there for me. And my job as a sponsor is to make sure that people's reliance is on the fellowship, as a, on God acting through the fellowship as a whole. And Maureen, who I quote a lot, she said that she wouldn't sponsor anyone unless they are talking to two other people with more than 10 years sobriety on a daily basis. If you're not doing that, I won't talk to you, she'd say. Which is absolutely right. Because it stops me, that would stop me becoming dependent on any one person. I need to make sure that no one becomes dependent on me. Uh, my friend Tom says the best thing he does for his sponsees is go away a lot. <laughs> 
and I think this is right, my job is to give people tools not to be a source of anything. Um, what else do I have to say? Uh, practicing these principles in all our affairs. The steps are wonderful. They really are. But if I'm going to live with other people in AA, I need the traditions. If I'm going to function in a group, I need the traditions. And how I've learned to function in the outside world is to use the traditions in all of my relationships. And in particular, you know, my relationship with my partner, my relationship with, with colleagues. And there's a wonderful passage here which really uh, gets echoed in the traditions. Uh, it's on page 117. And the two chapters which get, uh, two of the chapters which get ignored the most are uh, the chapter to wives and the family afterward. And the chapter to wives, I, I think, is absolute gold dust. And page 117. Some of the snags you will encounter are irritation, hurt feelings, and resentments. Your husband will sometimes be unreasonable and you will want to criticize. Have you ever wanted to criticize? Have you ever observed someone doing something wrong? Um, for instance, they're not doing the washing up the way I was taught to do the washing up. They're not tidying in a logical fashion. They're, why are you so late for everything? I'm never late for anything. Starting from a speck on the domestic horizon, great thunderclouds of dispute may gather. These family dissensions are very dangerous, especially to a husband. Often you must carry the burden of avoiding them or keeping them under control. Never forget that resentment is a deadly hazard to an alcoholic. We, we do not mean that you have to agree, agree with your husband whenever there is an honest difference of opinion. Just be careful not to uh, disagree in a resentful or critical spirit. And what I've been taught to do, if I observe something in my relationship with my other half, where things I, I, I believe something is going wrong, if I feel any kind of animus against him, if I feel any kind of resentful, if it's burning inside me, I'm not allowed to say anything. I have to wait till I'm at peace. Then I might be allowed to say something, but the funny thing is as soon as you're at peace, you're like, what would be the point? Um, I've been in a position in a relationship where I was 100% convinced I was with the wrong person because I wasn't being made to feel special enough. Basically, that was the problem. And... I was convinced someone else would be right for me, and I went to my sponsor and I said, look, that I, the relationship has been dead for years. I've only just really realized it at gut level, and I'm sure this is the right thing, and I know God is leading me towards something new, and I feel this great sense of hope. I have no plans for the future. I just, I see this, this blank sheet of paper on which God is going to write my future. I've dropped my own plans, and I've seen through I stayed in this relationship out of fear. And luckily, I had a sponsor who knew me very well. And he suggested something very simple. He said, You seem a little troubled by this whole situation. It seems very rash. This has come up very quickly. Why don't you give it a year? Give it a year. And again, wait till you're at a point of peace with the other person. 
and then you can make a decision whilst you still have some resentment, some criticism in your mind, whilst you're still blaming the other person for how you feel in this relationship, you won't necessarily be making the right decision. You may be right, who knows? And he was being a little disingenuous there, and knew there was something up. And over the coming year, I, I, I gave it a go. He'd never been wrong on anything else before. Uh, footnote, sometimes they are wrong. My sponsor happens not to be. Um, I gave it a year, and over the course of the year, I looked back with horror at the point I'd got to, at how I had built a case against the other person. When I achieved a position of peace, I realized the wealth of what I was being given in this relationship. I was utterly blinded to it by my own wall of fear and resentment and bitterness and greed. With this criticism business, um, I know it's, it's a banal example, but it, lots of my examples are banal, so why stop now? Um, I was doing the washing up very loudly. You know when you do the washing up loudly, just to indicate to the other person it wasn't actually your turn, it was their turn? Now, my other half is, is very sound spiritually, he doesn't say, he, he says he doesn't believe in God, he's into recovery, blah, 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 but he's light years ahead of me spiritually. He didn't respond to the loud washing up, he knew it was going on, but he didn't respond, he didn't react to it. And I noticed that he wasn't reacting, so I thought, I need to escalate. <laughs> We're taking it to DEFCON 2. So I said something to the effect of, it's always me that does the washing up, it wouldn't hurt if you did it once a month. And he left the room, and when he leaves the room without saying anything in a situation like that, I know I'm in deep, deep trouble. And immediately, have you ever immediately regretted something? I immediately regretted what I'd said. And... He left the room and he came back in around 10 minutes later. Again, without an Al-Anon program, he knew to respond, not to react. He didn't say the first 87 things that came into his mind. He rejected all of those and waited. And he came back in and he said two things. The first thing he said was, I have never criticized you. And I looked back and I thought, you know what, that's right. We've been together for years. He'd never criticized me. He'd accepted everything at face value. And the second thing he said was a killer. He said, I could make a list too. <laughs> so he'd observed everything, but, decide, but made a policy decision not to pick me up on anything. And then he left the room again. And he also made the decision that he was going to spend some time on his own. He wasn't going to talk to me for a few, few hours. He was done for a while. And I said, are you angry with me? And he said, no, I'm just reading. Um, I learned a lot from that. Um, there's a line on the next page. It says, patience, tolerance, understanding, and love are the watchword. Show him these things in yourself, and they will be reflected back to you from him. Live and let live is the rule. If you both show a willingness to remedy your own defects, there will be little need to criticize each other. And 
in tradition 10 i'm told to have no opinion on outside issues and an outside issue is what you do how you live your life your internal world that whole area is an outside issue to me if you invite me in it becomes my issue if you don't it it's not and tradition one unity if I'm going to remain unified in a relationship with someone else, that I'm, the blocks must be removed from inside me. And I've spent a lot of my life trying to make dysfunctional relationships functional. And what I've learned is that although I can transact with people that aren't very healthy, um, I can have formal relationships through formal interactions which are possible. Unity is not possible with someone beyond a particular point of unhealthiness. Uh, but what I've discovered, both Jonathan and I have the skill of observing how we affect the other person. So this is tradition four. We're autonomous, except in as far as we affect other groups or AI as a whole. I can do what I want, except in as far as it affects him. Then I have to consider the impact it has on him. And if I'm observing that and adjusting accordingly, and he is observing how he is affecting me and adjusting accordingly, as it says, there is no need to criticize. If someone doesn't have that skill, criticizing won't help. It will make the barrier stronger. And life has become a lot easier for me since I decided to um, go with the people who are already there, go to build relationships with people who have already developed the skill of having relationships. Um, it means my life, in, in some ways, there are fewer people in my life than there otherwise would be. Um, in terms of very close relationships. But it means that my energy isn't being spent on relationships which don't work. And my energy can then be spent on trying to carry this message to others, to be able to show other people what works in my life, and I can be much more useful that way than trying to shake people into it. Um, and just one last thing. Show him these things in yourself, and they will be reflected back to you from him. I spent a lot of my life trying to change people by pointing it out one more time. And the only way change ever happens in the people around me is if I demonstrate myself, if I become that uh, corny old line of, of, of be the change you want to see. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I can be at peace then. That's all I've got. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs>